Okay, Parshas Mishpatim, uh, we shift out of the narrative, the story that the Torah tells us throughout all of Sefer Bracious, uh, the first half of Sefer Shmos, and Parshas Mishpatim, the beginning of Perik Chafal, the 21st chapter of Sefer Shmos, is this fundamental change in the way that the Torah speaks to us. Uh, I've shared this story many, many times, I'll say it very, very briefly, my first week in Atlanta, Georgia, when we moved, uh, whatever that is, 20 years ago now, uh, I needed to take my car in, probably for some inspection to change my license or get a license plate. I don't remember what it was. I'm sitting there in the waiting room and a very southern-looking gentleman uh, is sitting there next to me um, and comes on over and I says, like, you Jewish? It's like, yes, sir. Uh, He says, I read the Bible every night. I said, so nice. That's amazing. No, I really do. I love reading the Bible, Rabbi, he tells me. And uh, he goes on to say, he starts from the beginning, Genesis, I love the stories, and then right around Exodus chapter 21, I just like, I grind to a halt. I just, I grind to a halt, and then I just start on over from Genesis. And uh, so those familiar with the way that the Chumash goes, he's discussing Parshish and Mishpatim. All of a sudden he gets to the laws, to the details to the nitty-gritty of my cow goring your cow and who pays what and when and how. Not interesting anymore. That would just see flip back to the beginning and go back to his stories. That's the part that we're in. We hit the store, we hit the laws. There are a number of fascinating and fundamental comments from Rav Hirsch, who we have been focusing on his commentary that uh, I really look forward to sharing. Really two major comments that he makes on the introductory psukim of our Parshas Mishpatim. We just completed the end of last week. We had the Aseris HaDibros. The Jews stand at the foot of Har Sinai. They receive the Torah. And, uh, and then we move into these, these laws. The opening pasuk, let me give it to you in front of you. Um, let's just read the really the first pasuk, and then we'll we'll go a little bit backwards and a little bit forwards. The first pasuk of our parsha begins ve'ele hamishpatim asher tasim lifnehem. Here they are. These are the rules. These are the laws that one that you Hashem speaking to Moshe, you must set before them. You shall place before them. And, and here they are. And then the Torah goes into a series of laws. The first law is Kisikne Eved Ivri. If you will acquire a Jewish slave, so he works for six years, in the seventh year he goes free. And if he doesn't want to go free and he wants to stay, then we have the halacha in which we pierce his ear and he stays until the Yovel. The Torah is then going to go on to the second law that if a man sells his daughter, what are the status, what are the length of terms in which he, she is allowed to remain um, working for another family until she goes free, and that is until she becomes um, of a certain age. We're going to get into a few of those details, but not so much. And then a whole slew of laws, a whole parsha, one after another, um, sets of laws, uh, mostly social and monetary law in terms of how to guide and dictate the way that the Jewish people will, will function. On this simple pasuk, this opening pasuk, five words, Ve'ele tasim Refersh picks up on two nuances, which he says are not just small nuances, but actually describe and summarize every Everything that the Torah is trying to do in this series of bodies of laws. Number one, he says, is the Vav, the opening letter of our parsha, and these are the rules that you shall set before them, which of course is missing in the translation that you have in front of you, in which it just begins, these are the rules. If you just have that English, these are the rules, you are missing that letter, the 
Eile, that Vav is what's known as a Vav HaChibur, a Vav that connects. It connects what's being discussed now to that which was being discussed prior, and that is of central importance. So let's take a look what was actually being discussed prior. There were two halachas, two laws regarding the Mizbeach. The Mizbeach is the altar, very large structure that stood right outside of the, uh, the Heichel, the inner chamber of the Beis HaMikdash. On this large altar, many of the Karbanas, the offerings, there was uh, fires that were constantly being burnt upon them. Gohanim would ascend a large ramp to get to the top, and the Torah teaches us two halachas. Now again, remember, we're not learning the laws of the Beis Hamikdash or the Mishkan. That we just received the Torah at the end of last week's parsha. We're now going to get a series of social laws. The Mishkan is going to be built in the next couple of parshas, parshas Truma, Tetzava. We're going to learn all about it, but. In the midst of all of this, there were specifically two laws that were taught at the end of last week's parsha. So, given it's all on your screens in front of you, we're just going to go backwards just a little bit. That jumped a little bit too much. I want to show you how I'm literally just going back. Uh, so here's Mishpatim, here's our parsha. If we just go back three verses to the end of last week's parsha, the Torah says as follows: Mizbach Adamata Aseli. You will make for me an altar of earth, a mizbeach that's made out of earth. And upon this altar, this mizbeach, you will bring all of your karbanos, whether they be an olo or a shlamim, your tzon, your bakar, your sheep, your cattle. Every place where I cause my name to be mentioned, I will come, I will bless you, my presence will be there. And then the Torah adds two halachas. If you make it out of stone, which is the most primary way that you would build a mizbech, you would use stone, beautiful Jerusalem stone, you find it everywhere in Yerushalayim, build me a mizbech, if you make it out of stone... You may not build it out of hewn stones, meaning where you used a metal implement to cut the stone from its quarry. That would clearly be the most common way to get the stones out of the quarry. There would be large metal instruments um, that would be used to cut, to saw, to hack, whatever it was that they would need to do. Torah has halacha forbidden. You're not permitted to use any implement, any instrument of metal on the cutting of the stones. Why? The Torah itself says, Ki aleha. If you use your tool, your cherev literally is a sword upon it, you've profound, profaned it. It is a holy sanctified stone that's going to be used uh, to build this mizbech upon which we're going to bring our karbanos and all of the offerings. And you used a sword, something a metal can't be. Rashi already quotes from Chazal. They use the language, the Mizbeach, which is here to elongate life, to bring us peace between us and our Father in Heaven, to bring us closer. It's inappropriate that a knife, metal, which is the main instrument in knives, in swords, which is used to shorten lives, which is used to kill, which is used for destruction, for war, and all of that element of life, it's inappropriate, Chazal says, Rashi quotes, that we should use an element which shortens life, metal of a knife or of a sword, on the Mizbeach, which elongates life, which brings peace unto the world. And therefore we have Allah, you cannot hew the stones with any metal implement. In fact, the Rambam, when he quotes this Allah, says, indeed, 
no metal can ever come into contact. Even after the stone's been placed into the Mizbech, you cannot have any stone come in, any metal come into contact with the stone. Rav Hirsch adds a layer of meaning to this understanding, such a beautiful layer of meaning. As, as the Gemara says it, as it's you know, something which shortens life, shouldn't be used to extend life, the, the sword represents something else beyond that. Not just that it shortens life, but it's a sign of power. It's a sign of dominion. It's a sign of what creates the hierarchy of who's in charge. And the Jewish nation have waged this war since our inception, since we received the Torah at the end of last week's Parsha, of what makes right in the world, what creates power is not the sword, but the morality of the nation that understands how to live an ethical, correct, appropriate life. And these two forces have always been at battle, at war with each other, and generally we have lost that battle. It's the sword which dominates. It's the knives which control who's in control of the world and who will dictate the terms of how the world will work. Might makes right. That has been the ethos of world history. The most powerful nation will rule. And that refers says right after the Aseris HaDibris are given, right after, before we even begin to build the Mishkan, Hashem says, there will be no metal on my Mizbeach. There will be no sword, there will be no knife, there will not even be the instrument of war. This is going to be the seat of power in the world, and the seat of power will be morality. It will be ethics. It will be religiosity. It will be spirituality. It will be one man taking care of another man, not fighting him and dominating over him. And therefore, when you build my Mizbeach, you will not allow any metal instrument to touch it, to demonstrate, to demonstrate we're the real seat of power. This is the day and age we yearn for, where it will not be the sword that demonstrates power and that proves dominion, but it will be the morality and the ethics with which we live. And that's why the Torah teaches us right away, no sword, no metal on the building of my Mizbech. Beautiful idea. The very next Pasuk, the final Pasuk of last week's parsha, a second halacha regarding the Mizbech. You may not ascend on steps to the Mizbech. It was very high. So you needed to get to the top. They didn't have elevators. They didn't have escalators. Well, how do you get to the top? Well, two ways. You either build steps or you build a ramp. The Torah says you may not build a step. That's a lot, not allowed to get to the top. Why? Let you show your nakedness upon it. Meaning to say, when a person walks up steps, certainly if there are large steps to get to the top of a large structure, one has to spread their legs apart as they take one step to the next. And it would be almost like you're revealing your nakedness to the step itself, to the stones of the Mizbeach. You would be revealing your nakedness, and that's inappropriate for the Mizbeach. Rashi points out, they weren't really revealing their nakedness. They wore michnesayim, the kohanim. Sure, they had robes on, but underneath the robe, they wore michnesayim. So they weren't actually going to ever be revealing anything inappropriate to the steps. But it would look like that, and therefore you're not allowed to have steps. You have to have a ramp so that the kohanim can take small... Um, 
uh, modest steps up along the way, and therefore not even look like they're revealing themselves, so to speak. Rashi points out also from the Chazal that the lesson in this is, the lesson in this is steps, the metal, the, the stones, they don't, they don't have feelings. They don't actually get embarrassed or humiliated if a Kohen were to reveal his nakedness to this step. The Kohen is not. But even if he did, it's a stone. There are no feelings to the stone. Yet, the Torah says, you cannot even do something which would have the appearance of embarrassing or humiliating the stone by revealing your nakedness to the stone. And that's to show you on the Mizbeach, Rashi says, if to stones which don't have feelings, we have to be sensitive to make sure that we never do anything which would humiliate or embarrass or show something that shouldn't be shown to the stone, how much more so to our fellow human beings who do have feelings and do get embarrassed and can be humiliated or degraded if we do or say things inappropriate. If to the stone steps we're not allowed to do something like that, build a ramp instead, certainly the lesson is to our uh, fellow human beings, how much sensitive sensitivity must we have towards them? The Re- 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 Hirsch again adds a layer to this understanding. Refersh says, the other battle which has raged throughout mankind is the battle between man's, let's call it, lower self and higher self, between our animalistic nature, our desires, our impulses, particularly in the realm of, of sexuality, and man's higher calling to control oneself, to be able to say, I want something, and I'm not going to have it. This too is one of the major, major areas in all of world history that have dictated how a Jew is supposed to lead the world and how we live our life. Just because you want something really badly, I desire it, that doesn't mean you can have it. Sometimes there's a time and a place and sometimes there isn't ever a time and a place. But that model of in the, specifically in the realm of sexuality, specifically there that man's higher self should control the animalistic self that we have. On the Mizbeach, HaTorah teaches us right away two halachas. Right after the giving of the Torah, before we get to our parsha, number one, you may not use a sword because in this house, it's morality and ethics and spirituality which are the dominion of power. And in this house, even a step which might reveal your nakedness, which is not even really doing, you will not have. There will be a message of a ramp that says we protect modesty here. We protect the upper, higher realm of the human being and to control the animalistic part and say that will not control me, I will control it. These two platforms, so to speak, that mankind lives with always and that the Torah teaches us what, what it is that it, life is about in these two areas, the sword versus morality and the base animalistic nature of mankind versus our spiritual nature. Those are the two halachas the Torah opens up with in its discussion of the Mizbeach. Ve'ele ha-mishpatim. And then right after this, we just scroll down just one more. Our parsha. Ve'ele ha-mishpatim. And now you're going to get to the laws. What kind of laws are these? These are mundane, boring my cow, your cow, I set a fire, you set a fire. How much space do I have to have between this crop and that crop? All the laws are going to be here. Rabbi, it's not interesting. I'm going back to the beginning. These laws, says the first, begins with a vav. Ve'ela. And these are my laws, connecting them to the previous two halachas. You want to know 
how you're going to achieve this? Do you want to know how you're going to get to a place in which there's no knife or sword or metal on my Mizbeach? Do you want to know how you're going to get to a place that's going to demonstrate that the Jew and his morality and his ethics is the true power in the world? Do you want to know how you're going to take your spiritual part of your being and control the animalistic part of your being? How am I going to get there? Beautiful lessons. Moshe, you taught us at the end of last week's parsha: no steps, only a ramp. No knives or swords or metal. How do we get there? Ve'ele ha'mishpatim. I'm going to give you a set of laws. You might think that they are a boring, tedious, minute. Follow these laws. These are going to be the method through them that are going to take you from one place to another, from a place of being this new nation formed, traveling through the deserts, to become a place that's going to be the embodiment of these messages. And I'm going to teach you these laws before you actually build the Mishkan. I'm going to give you the vision. The vision is no metal, no steps. What's the message of that? What we just discussed. It's morality and ethics and spirituality that's our goal, not the knife and the sword and our base animalistic nature. How do I get there? How do I now actually build the Mishkan? In between the vision with the two laws of last week's parsha, says Rafersh, and the actual building of the Mishkan in the next two weeks' parsha, Ve'ela Hamishpatim. Follow them. They're not minute details that are like just boring. They're actually going to elevate the human being if you follow these sets of laws to get to the place that we need to get. Yes, someone, did you have a question? So somebody raised a hand? Okay, we'll do it at the end. That is point number one that refers to addresses from just that first vav as connecting these mishpatim to the previous laws of last week's parsha. Then he notes, as Rashi does as well, ve'elah mishpatim, these are the laws if you had to choose a verb that Moshe should be told. When Hashem says to him, these are the laws that you should, we would have said, teach them. Lil mode. These are the laws that you should instruct them, command them to be mitzaveh. There are lots of verbs that the Torah uses about teaching and commanding and instructing. The word the Torah says is asher tosim lifnehem, that you need to place before them. That is an odd word. You place physical things in front of people. You place food in front of guests. You place clothing in front of somebody who needs it. You, you, you don't place a law in front. I'm, I'm giving you an oral. I'm telling you something. I'm teaching you something. I don't place that in front of you. I teach it to you. I instruct you. I command you. Why do we use the word tasim? To place it before them. So Rashi notes, as Chazal say, we use a word that's normally used for setting a table, for placing food in front of a guest. That's where we find the word lasim. Many times in Tanakh, Rashi brings, the first brings this idea. So why would we use that word when it comes to the laws? So Rashi says that Hashem is telling Moshe, I need you to teach the laws to, these, to the people as clearly and as expansively as they need so that it's like a table that's set in front of them. That every aspect that's been addressed has been, that they might have has been addressed, that they are clear, they understand it um, as, they, as they need. And that is uh, the language of Asher Tasim Lifnehem. Rav Hirsch adds, here as well, a comment on that which Rashi says, and he uses this as a springboard to discuss one of the most fundamental concepts in all of Torah, and that is we just read the Aseris Adibros. We read the Ten Commands. We read about Klal Yisrael standing at the foot of Harsinai receiving the Torah. Together with that, this written law that we receive, what's known as the Torah Shebichtav, the written Torah, the five books of Moshe that we're studying, came the oral law, the Torah Shebaal Peh. 
the oral law, the tradition which was also given to Moshe on Har Sinai. Refersh points out the earliest hint that the Torah gives us in its written form that there is also this oral form that came along with it, first we find in the word Asher Tasim Lifnehem, place it before them. Put it down as clear as placing food in front of a guest. Because as Rav Hirsch writes, writes, if you read through this Parsha, this Parsha, for example, has two psukim on the law of, again, my cow, you keep using my cow, gores, your cow. We have an entire tractate, the entire Mesechta, Mesechta Bava Kamui, Mesechta Bava Metziah. We have hundreds, several hundreds of pages of Gemara on five to eight different verses in this week's Parsha. It's a five psukim. And the Gemara spends 200 pages discussing it. it says with Hirsch, and yet Hashem said to Moshe, place it before them as clear, like a table that's already set. Uh, he didn't. These psukim do not describe everything we need to know about the law. It, it just doesn't. A couple verses here, a couple verses there. You know what the Torah says about Shabbos? The Torah says, keep it, rest on it, don't light a fire, and if you violate it, you're going to die. Uh, well, what does it look like to keep it? You didn't tell me any of the details. Put tefillin on. That's all, just put, put totafot bein nacha. You didn't tell me how or what or how. It just doesn't say anything. And yet, the introductory phrase is, make it crystal clear. Where's that supposed to happen? Says Rav Hirsch, this heading, this introduction, introduction states that even though there are a few short, naked sentences in these notes, the precise application and complete exposition is left to the verbal tradition and transmission. It is clear that when Moshe did it, he didn't give us everything, but he was told to. And this is the hint in the idea of the Torah Shabal Peh, the oral law that came together with it. He finishes this thought by saying, and as an example of that, take a look at the first two laws that the Torah gives us. If you were to take a, this is a common question that's asked in the first explanation is just, uh, to me, was a very novel and brilliant one. Here you are, right after the Seres Adibros, and Moshe is going to come down from Harsina. He's going to teach us a number of law, social interaction, a couple of things that need to be taught. If I would throw out the question to you and say, you know, anything you want, where would you start? Ela Mishpatim, Parshas Mishpatim is going to bring, there are going to be some, I don't know if it's 74, 75 different mitzvahs in the Parsha. Where should we start teaching the Jewish people? What should be the first law that they learn about social dynamics and social requirements? It would be a fascinating study. I can give you all the mitzvahs of the Torah and say, you choose which one you think would come first. I can guarantee, guarantee that the two you will not choose to be the first law to be taught to the Jewish people after the giving of the Torah are the first two that Moshe teaches. A, if, you, if a, a Jewish man steals and is sold into slavery, and then after six years he wants to stay, pierce his ear that he could stay for another 50. That's not the first law you're choosing. And you know what the second law you're choosing isn't? That if a man wants to sell his daughter, here are the terms that he's allowed to sell her. That's not the starting point. I can guarantee you would not have chosen those two. Why in the world does Moshe? Says Rav Hirsch. I want to use his language for, for a moment. 
Here we are, the civil and criminal laws that the nation is to be given, the most fundamental basis of justice, human kindness that are to be laid down to govern the relationship and behavior of man to his fellow man. And the first law is if a man sells another man or if a man sells his daughter, what an unthinkable enormity if actually this Torah Shebechtav, the written word, this is the only, if, if this were to be, the one and sole source of the concept of rights, of protecting people's rights. And we should talk about selling those rights. What a mass of laws and principles of Jewish prudence must have already been said and fixed, considered and laid down and explained if this is what the book begins with, these rare and quite exceptional cases. He explains as follows. Let me, those are his words. Let me just go back and explain what he means. Very often when I'm learning Gemara with my students, very often, whether those students are, are grown-ups who are learning in a shir and shul, or whether or not they're high school students, the Gemara often will speak about exceptional, unthinkable cases. What would be the law if uh, the Mara likes to speak about a certain case? There's an animal of a of a, of a firstborn. If a firstborn animal gives birth to its first offspring, the first offspring under certain circumstances are sanctified, has to be given to a Kohen. So the Gemara asks, what if an animal gives birth to uh, a firstborn and then that firstborn calf was inserted into the womb of a second cow and then was birthed a second time? But the second mother, it was its first, is it considered a first? And you're like, I don't even understand what you're talking about. Even in our today's modern technological, it's like hard to imagine what you're talking about. But in the times of the Talmud, what in the world? And there are similar cases, concepts, people do this. And and the the students scratched their heads and they said, but why would someone do that? And I said, like, I don't know. I just want to know if they did, what's the law? The answer to the question of why is the Gemara discussing that is a very simple but important one. If you only discuss the obvious, simple, most common cases in your books of law, then when the rabbi who's living throughout all the generations come across the unusual cases, what in the world is he supposed to do with the unusual cases? If in your books of law you discuss the unusual cases, clarified them, then by clarifying the unusual outliers, you have everything in the middle as well. Simplest, most basic example is I, I literally would demonstrate this to the students. If I want to know what this room, the dimensions of the room that we're in, if I stand in the middle of the room and I spread out my arms and I say, well, I can't feel the walls, but I know nothing about the dimensions. The only way I'll know about the dimensions is actually to go to the very edges of the room until I can't go any farther. I touch my hand against the wall. Now I know where this edge is. Now I know where this edge is and that edge. Now I know the dimensions. And I only know the dimensions by going to the farthest extremities of the area, marking the boundaries, and now I know everything inside. And that's what the Gemara always does. You want to know about the parameters of a law? You discuss the most wacky, far-fetched, hard-to-imagine cases. Talk about that. Figure it out. Understand it. And now all the easy ones. The rabbi is going to look like a brilliant person. I know this. Easy like this. Easy like that. Because he spent all of his time discussing the unusual cases. That's the answer as far as the Gemara. Refersh points out the Torah actually does the same thing here. And it's based on the dynamic of the oral law and the written law. And here he puts forth his understanding of the way that those two go together. It's a very famous piece, and he writes it right here in the beginning of our parsha. And his example is as follows. If you go to a lecture, and uh, similar to the one you're sitting in right now, and you're taking notes, 
you're enjoying what's going on, but the rabbi or lecturer, whatever the topic could be, science or math or Torah, is speaking faster or, or more complicated than you're able to. So as you're taking notes, how do you take notes to make sure you get it all? You jot down certain phrases, you make little arrows, asterisks, and you, you double word, whatever it is, in order that as you're in, taking in all the information, you'll have in your notes, you're not going to write a word-for-word transcription of the lecture. You don't need a word-for-word transcription of lecture. You just need to be able to look at your notes and remember everything that took place in the actual lecture so that your notes become a shorthanded version of what the lecture was. If you look over your, na- your notes in one, two, three pages, you can go over and clarify a three-hour lecture without having to listen to the entire three-hour lecture again by simply reviewing the notes that you took. If someone who wasn't at the lecture read your notes, they would never understand the, the fullness of the lecture. They weren't there. If you were at the lecture and you look at the notes, the notes guide you through point by point in terms of understanding everything that was being said. If you weren't there, the notes will either totally mislead you or confuse you or basically leave you to say, this doesn't make any sense. And the truth is, it doesn't make any sense if all you had were your notes. That is the, the muscle, the parable of first rights to the relationship between the oral law and the written law. For 40 years, Moshe teaches the Jewish people the Torah teaches them all of it. 40 years. It's an oral law that he's teaching them, the details of every law, all the cases, the unusual ones, the common ones, the extremities, the simple ones. He goes through it all. And at the end of 40 years, he hands them, the Gemara has a discussion when the Torah was written down, like piece by piece as Moshe taught them, or at the end of the 40 years, and he gives them the scroll. But at the end of the 40 years, the scroll that we have, the written Torah, Again, Moshe goes up to Harsina. He does not come down with a full Torah. He comes down with the Aseris Adibros, and then he starts teaching and teaching and teaching and teaching. And at the end of the 40 years, we have the final version of the written Torah, which Moshe had been taught up on Harsina. That written Torah is now the notes of that which the Jewish people had spent 40 years learning all of the details. And how do the notes look? Well, there's sometimes what we call shava, a word here and a word here. And like, oh yeah, remember we use that same word in both places? It's because laws in this area apply to that area. And all the different tricks, so to speak, that the Torah uses as the Gemara is full of how to interpret the written word which we have to flesh out the fullness of the actual oral law which was taught together. But we only have the notes. You need to know, how do you read the notes? What are the rules? So we have the sages transmitted from generation to generation, the guidelines for reading the written law so that we understand how to read it to know the fullness of the oral law that was obviously taught because A, as we have the language of Asher Tassim Lifnaim that you should place before them, which he was doing for the 40 years. And as an example of that, Refer says these first two laws, a, a book, a religion, a nation, which is all about rights, protecting those rights, humane actions, humane treatment of one person to another, should begin with these laws of if you acquire a Hebrew slave, if a man sells his... Like, what? How could you start there? He says, this is actually the classic example of a Gemara asking the most unusual case. We start with the most unusual, uncommon examples. From those, everything else flows. As, as these particular laws will show you. What are the rights even of a thief? 
who steals and is sold to pay back the money of what he sold, what are even his rights as he is sold? And that is how the actual book begins in Refersh's language. These book, this book of law can speak of these, which are after all quite exceptional cases, and it is with these sentences, the contents of which deny and limit the very holiest personal rights of man, the right to personal freedom, that the law begins. But it is quite a different matter if the written word is not the real source of the Jewish conception of rights, which was taught orally and entrusted to the living word, and this book is only to be an aid to memory and to reference, so that when there are any doubts, this book will be referenced as, this is going to remind you of the law that has been taught, but the complete law has been given over in its complete form, impressed upon them for a full 40 years, as Moshe taught them throughout the entire journey through the desert. And he, just to share one more word from him, the Torah Shebichsav, the written word, is to be to the oral law in the relation of a short notes on a full and extensive lecture on any scientific subject. For the student who has heard the whole lecture, short notes are quite sufficient to bring back afresh to his mind the whole subject matter of the lecture. For him, a word, an added mark, an exclamation, a dot, an underline, oh, yeah, 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 that's all I need. I was there. However, for those who had not heard the lecture from the master, such notes would be completely useless. And if they tried to put anything together from those notes, they would make many, many errors. That is, he says, that is this idea, the oral law and the hints of it in the beginning of the description of Eila Mishpatim. Here are the laws. A, Asher Tassim, place it before them, which Moshe doesn't seem to do, but that's what he was told to do because he did in the form of the oral law. And then the two exceptional cases, once everything has been taught, you can start with the exceptions because this is not the first teaching the people themselves actually get. They've been taught from Moshe orally everything that they needed to know. Here are the reminders of the things, of the exceptional cases that they might not have as clear or might not remember in the very beginning. Those are his two uh, very, very fundamental um, comments um, that he begins our, our Parsha with. Um, A, just to review quickly, the sense of ve'ela, the vav. How will we achieve the lessons of the Mizbeach? No medal and no steps to teach us the message of ethics and morality and kindness is the real seat of power of the Jewish people, not the sword and might and power. How do we get there where we let our upper uh, elevated beings control our animalistic parts of us and say, not even to take a step is inappropriate. How do we get there? With these laws. Follow these laws. They might seem mundane. They might seem uh, complicated and tedious and just interpersonal. It's through those laws that you will achieve them and know that these laws are not only being taught in this form in front of us right now. These are the shorthanded notes of the oral law all of that is hinted at in the first Pasuk of our Parsha, that there is indeed much more of the teaching being transmitted from generation to generation, eventually written down, of course, in the Gemara. And these Psukim that we have are just the notes to, so to speak, transmit it succinctly from one generation to the next, but it has to come along with that oral tradition which fleshes it all out and discusses all of the scenarios. Those are some of Rav uh, opening comments on our Parsha. 
Always a pleasure. Wednesday afternoon, spending some time with you. Comments or questions, happy to uh, see if we could address anything.